Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of a senior's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today, I'm thrilled to have a very special guest joining me on the podcast. His name is Dave DeBroncart, better known as ePatient Dave. He is a baby boomer and a survivor of metastatic cancer, and as of 2015, when he turned 65, he is now a Medicare beneficiary as well. And although most people who survive cancer thank their lucky stars and go back to their usual lives, Dave came out of his experience convinced that one of the keys to better health and healthcare, whether you're facing a life-threatening illness like cancer, or living with chronic illnesses, or just trying to be proactive about your own health, is to learn to become more involved in your own healthcare. And especially to learn to bring information to your doctors and to learn to review your own health information so that you can actively partner with your doctors in managing your own health care or the health care of a family member if you're a family caregiver. Now, historically, the relationship between patients and doctors has not really been that of a partnership. It's been more that doctors will take care of you and will keep all your medical information and they'll tell you what to do. But that has been changing these past several years, in part due to the efforts of Dave and others who call themselves e-patients and have championed a vision of healthcare that they call participatory medicine. Their work has led to a movement of patient empowerment and involvement that is really creating a sea change in healthcare. And it's been of particular interest to me because, as you know, older adults are the ones who come into contact with the healthcare system the most, and so they're actually the most likely to be harmed by healthcare that's suboptimal or that's a bad fit for their needs. So older adults and their families really have a lot to gain from this effort that Dave and his colleagues are spearheading, and that's part of why I wanted Dave to be on the podcast. Now, I'm not the only one who believes Dave's work is a game changer. In fact, last year, Dave became the first former patient to be invited as a visiting professor at the Mayo Medical Center, which is a very prestigious medical institution based in Rochester, Minnesota. He is the author of two books, His Cancer Diary, Laugh, Sing, and Eat Like a Pig, and also Let Patients Help. And he's frequently invited to give keynote speeches at high-level healthcare conferences. So I'm thrilled that he was able to join us today to share his story and his insights on getting more involved in your own healthcare or in the healthcare of an older relative if you're a family caregiver, and on why this is so good both for you and your own healthcare and also for making healthcare better for everyone. Dave, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. It's great to be here. It's great to be alive, and it's great to have connected with you and the work you're doing, and let's have some fun. Yeah, let's. I wanted to start by just having you share a little bit more about your story. Your first book's full title is Laugh, Sing, and Eat Like a Pig, how an empowered patient beats stage four cancer and what healthcare can learn from it. I would love for you to share a little bit more about what happened to you when you got sick and how this turned you on to being more involved in your healthcare and how it's changed your approach to healthcare. Well, you know, I was just kind of going through life in my mid-50s. Life had its ups and downs. I worked in an industry that was going through an enormous amount of change. I used to work in the industry that made typesetting machines. 
Boy, when desktop publishing oh, wow. came along, that changed things. Well, and there are some lessons in there. I'm sure everybody who is in our demographic remembers when desktop publishing came along in the 80s. And we won't go deeply into it here. But the parallel with healthcare is that before then, if you wanted to use fonts, you had to go to an expert in the printing industry. Because mm -hmm. you just couldn't get fonts yourself. I mean, you could type up a newsletter, cut and paste it with glue, but that was it. Well, when desktop publishing came along, those of us in the industry said, are you kidding? The public doesn't know how to use fonts. Notice the parallel with healthcare. And mm -hmm. it turns out, indeed, people did a lot of stupid things in the early going. You would see in desktop publishing things that we called ransom note typesetting because clueless people would use every font in the computer just because they could. Mm -hmm. They didn't know what they were doing. Well, over time, people got more experienced, same as is happening with smart patients these days, and the tools got easier to use. And that's what we're starting to see in healthcare. So... Nine years ago this month, January of 2007, uh, I had uh, a physical and, and I needed a shoulder x-ray and totally by coincidence, turns out in the shoulder x-ray, there was a spot in my lung. This was completely dumb luck coincidence. And that's, oh that spot turned out to be a tumor and it wasn't lung cancer, even though it was in my lung, it was kidney cancer that had spread everywhere. And over mm -hmm. the next few weeks, we found out that I had five tumors in both lungs. I soon found out the painful way that I had a big tumor growing in my left thigh bone. Turns out that I had them in my skull. And even before, a few weeks before my treatment started, I had one erupt out of my tongue muscle in my mouth. I, oh, my goodness. Uh, I had a kidney cancer tumor growing in my mouth. It wasn't big, fortunately, but that's how sick I was. Right. Kidney cancer is a disease that at the time didn't have much hope and didn't have many good treatments. And a really important point is that at that time, all of the published literature about it was severely out of date. Mm. So this, you said this was nine years ago. So this was in 2007, yeah. January of 2007. Yeah. At that point, people were Googling for health information. Oh, of course. Did you try that once you had this diagnosis and sort of what happened next? Once my diagnosis was confirmed, and wisely the doctors would not confirm the diagnosis until they actually took a biopsy, took some tissue out of my lung and with a little needle and said, yep, you've got kidney cancer in your lung. As soon mm -hmm. as that was confirmed, my physician, my primary physician, Dr. Danny Sands, suggested, he said, Dave, you're an online kind of guy. Uh, you might like to join this community of other patients on the internet, which he happened to know was a good community. Now, everybody knows that there are idiots on the internet, of course. Mm -hmm. And if this election, if nothing else had convinced us, then this election cycle certainly would have. But there also is gold on the internet. I joined this patient community at my doctor's suggestion. And to make a long, long story short, all the information I got from them 
added to what the doctors and nurses were doing. I didn't go rogue. I took all the advice I got from these experienced patients, some of whom had been living with this disease for 10 years. So they had a lot of practical advice. Yeah. And I took it to the doctors and nurses and said, what do you think? And they said, yeah, they're right. To make a long story short, I ended up getting a treatment that most doctors at that time would not offer because the medical literature about it was severely out of date. It was the only thing that could, at that time, save anyone's life, and it worked for me. Now, mind you, one reason people don't like to use it is because the side effects sometimes kill people. Mm. And my oncologist, I really want to underscore this point, today my oncologist says that he's not sure I would have survived if it were not for the extra information I got from patients on how to beat the side effects. Oh, interesting. He actually said that in the British Medical Journal. Uh-huh. So get this, I was diagnosed in January. My median survival, which is how long it took half the people in a study to die, my median survival for patients like me was 24 weeks. That's how sick I was. And yet, by July 23rd, my treatment has had ended. I've had nothing since then. And I'm all better. Mm -hmm. All the weight I lost during cancer came back rapidly. And Well, that is fantastic. Well, the way it became the e-patient movement is the following January, which now was eight years ago this month, uh -huh. that same doctor said, you might like to learn about this e-patient thing. And I read their manifesto and I, I, I changed my name on social media. I changed my name from Patient Dave to e-patient Dave. Well, that's really a wonderful story. Well, tell us a little bit more about what is an e-patient, because I think a lot of people don't, aren't familiar with the term or aren't really clear on what it means. Well, exactly. And this is part of what makes this a social movement. Word is just slowly spreading. So e-patient is a term that was coined by a doctor who died 10 years ago in 2006 named Tom Ferguson. Mm -hmm. We called him Doc Tom, and he was a real visionary. Uh, he saw that the vast majority, you know, back in the 80s before the internet, he believed in medical self-care, and he published a magazine by that name, and then a book that was a compilation of articles. And then for those of us who remember the whole Earth Catalog, the post-Woodstock Hippie Survival Journal, mm -hmm. its 25th edition in 1994, Doc Tom was the medical editor. Uh, he knew that most of what all of us do is take care of ourselves, but he also knew that when trouble hits, a major thing that limits our ability to, to contribute is access to information. Mm -hmm. And when the internet came along, he saw that that changed what was possible. Now, right. it didn't make us oncologists or anything. Anyway, he coined this term e-patient, electronic, empowered, engaged, equipped, enabled, for what he saw pioneer e-patients doing to improve their health and their care for themselves and their families. You know, it's striking how... Um forward thinking he was because at the time I think it was really unusual for a doctor to to sort of think that giving patients medical information directly and encouraging them to, to think for themselves was you know was going to work for many people 
Well, this is a culture change, and in any culture change exactly parallel to feminism when I was in college, the culture change happens over a period of time, and it requires that people on both sides alter their thinking to allow what's newly possible. Right. Uh, my favorite example is the, uh, the women's movement. In 1912, I just put up a tweet a few minutes ago about how in 1912 in London, some suffragists were beaten to death by a mob. Oh, my goodness. The, yeah, the empire strikes back. Well, Right. And that was for speaking up and saying women, women should be voting. Well, yeah, Susan B. Anthony had been saying it for a half a century, for heaven's sake. And I'm sure there were people before her. But, you know, it's our job as boomers, as children of the 60s and 50s and whatever, to say, you know what, I've seen this movie before. I know how change happens. Speak up. Right. So let's talk about just, you know, what is this change that we're seeing right now and that the e-patients are helping to, to spark? You helped create an organization called the Society for Participatory Medicine. What's the vision and what's the sort of, how is it different from the kind of healthcare experience that most people have right now? Well, first of all, I want to be clear that the, the society was not my idea, and I kind of got dragged into it. There's an annual getaway that the Friends of Tom Ferguson used to go on every February. And the reason Dr. Sands invited me to read their manifesto, which they had finished after he died, was to go as a guest on that particular retreat. Well, a year later, that gang, which was just a bunch of friends, decided it was time to get organized. And so the 12 of them formed the society. And much to my amazement, they said, you know what, this is a real medical society, but it can't be run by a doctor. It's got to be a doctor and a patient. And so out of nowhere, they elected my doctor and me as the chairman of the medical society. Oh, that's wonderful. So you were the, uh, the founding chairman exactly. as a sort of uh, wonderful exactly. example of what a doctor-patient partnership could be. And that part of that partnership is the doctor saying, here, let me introduce you to other people who have your condition so you can research and bring in some uh, extra information. Exactly. And, and both Dr. Sands and I give speeches. Uh, one of his favorite lines is that knowledge is power mm -hmm. and that sharing the knowledge puts more power in the relationship. Right. Now, a big, a big cultural problem is that some, certainly not all, but some physicians were trained and or have friends who told them over and over and over that what makes them valuable is that they know things that patients don't. Uh. And for those people, the idea that a patient could know something useful seems like a threat to who they are, to their own value. I know, I'm no doctor. I still go to the doctor. I count on them for expertise. And one of the things Tom Ferguson said in his manifesto, he interviewed the director of the National Library of Medicine, who said, if I read two articles in journals every night after dinner, at the end of a year, I'd be 400 years behind on my reading. Right. And today, it's five times worse than that because there's so much more literature. The point being, it's no insult if a patient without medical training has seen an article that their doctor hasn't. It doesn't mean the doctor's a screw-up, and it doesn't mean the patient's a jerk. 
It just helps bring more information to the case. And when right. somebody's in trouble, that's a good thing. Yeah, no, definitely. As someone who used to study healthcare quality, I also know that just even when it's not the latest research in a journal article, you know, when it's studied, we often find that doctors are not practicing according to recommendations and guidelines that have been available for years. And some people have estimated that it takes 15 to 20 years for a new uh, best way to practice to become thoroughly diffused everywhere because doctors are busy and like all people, they're creatures of habits and they might just reflexively resort to what they've usually been doing unless somebody reminds them well, you know, to consider something uh, newer or something different. Yes. And, you know, I have real compassion uh, for physicians. I mean, I knew kids in school who worked harder, a lot harder than me, because I was something of a party animal in college, sorry to say. Okay. Well, I wasn't, not really sorry to say, but uh, anyway, these kids were Uh were known in my dorm as grade-grubbing pre-meds. Oh, okay. They were they wanted their A's in everything so they could get into a good medical school. They worked harder than me. They did years more work. They took much tougher exams. And that now today they get out into the world and there's an insurance company telling them, "Sorry, your 10 minutes is up. You're done mm-hmm. with this patient." It defeats what they were trained to do. Right. And gets in there. So anyway, that's you know, the title of my book is let patients help. It's not doctors are failed, doctors have failed, or medicine is corrupt, or it's let patients help. What do you think are the best ways for the average person to, um, to try to help, especially someone who doesn't necessarily have life-threatening metastatic cancer? Right. Um, the, the, way, um, the way you did. But how should an average person who maybe has a couple chronic conditions try to help? Well, the, the first thing to realize, and this is kind of funny, because so in what I'm going to say here, there is not a trace of shame or guilt. I, for the last 40 years, tried using guilt on myself to be healthier, and it did not, it did not work. No, it doesn't. I know I should eat better, but dude, I love pizza, you know, or right. can I have a third plate of spaghetti and meatballs and so on? None of this is about that. The thing to realize, though, is that there, it's one of the, a, a famous doctor named Marty McCary from Hopkins gave a speech at one conference that I was at. He put up a New Yorker cartoon where the doctor uh, was, was saying, there's nothing I can do for you that's as good as what you can do for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I... I don't know if we've discussed it before, but a year ago, 14 months ago, I was diagnosed as pre-diabetic. Mm. My hemoglobin A1C was a little bit high. Mm-hmm. And through social media, I know people who have blogged about diabetes and what that can be like with amputations and nerve pain and right. um, all kinds of things. So this kind of got my attention. And mm-hmm. I... Long story short, I've changed my life. I've lost 35 pounds since then. I have uh, become active. I've become somebody who really wants to get out and go for a walk every day. Uh, I eat better. A really important yeah. thing is that my wife 
really dived in along with me. Uh-huh. You know, so our home became a place where we do better things. Now, neither right. one of us is in danger of running a marathon soon. Okay. <laughs> but the most, really, the important thing to realize is that you, as a patient, number one, there's every reason in the world for you to be thinking for yourself. Mm-hmm. Number two, do what you can to be involved and understand what you can. In my book, I have a page of 10 things e-patients say to, mm-hmm. to participate in their health. Number one on the list is to ask your clinicians. When I say clinicians, I mean doctors, nurses, whoever's in the clinic. Right. Say, I'm the kind of person who likes to understand as much as I can. Could I ask some questions? Mm-hmm. Now, if your doctor or nurse or nurse practitioner or whatever says, no, I'm the one with the medical degree. I'll ask the questions. Mm -hmm. Then you really might want to find somebody else because they are not interested. They think they'll know everything that needs to be known and they're not interested in you helping. Mm -hmm. So it's always reasonable to ask for a second opinion on a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Always, always, always. Did you know there's a new... In the past couple of years, there's a new medical society to improve diagnosis. Oh, interesting. There's a thing on, it's SIDM, Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine. Mm-hmm. One of their biggest voices is a, another kidney cancer patient who I met in my group, and she's uh, actually a former board member of our society, Peggy Zuckerman. Oh, uh-huh. uh, she lives in the LA area, and she... She was on the CBS Evening News, I think, a few months few months ago, talking about it. So it's always reasonable to ask for a second opinion. Yeah. One of the things that I often try to share with people is that I find often the problem is not just a wrong diagnosis, although wrong diagnoses do come up, especially if it's for certain unusual conditions or rare yeah. conditions. But I often find that for many, you know, mundane, fairly common conditions, the problem wasn't the wrong diagnosis. It's that I find that patients and families aren't offered all the options, different options available for treatment. And so something very mundane like depression, for instance, mild to moderate depression in older adults, doctors will often offer treatment with prescription antidepressants. And that's not necessarily wrong. But if we look up the guidelines, you know, research has shown that certain kinds of therapy can be equally effective, and they can certainly be safer in that they have fewer side effects and interactions. And that's a choice that people often are not offered. Right. So often there are other possible treatment options that may have a different profile of risks that might be a better fit for somebody. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you don't ask or do research, you may never find out about those. Yes. Another of the questions on that page of 10 that I mentioned is, are there any other options? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely correct. If people want to do some research on a health condition or treatment options, do you have favorite places that you suggest they look online? Because you were saying earlier that there's gold online, but I mean, we could say there's also some fool's gold on there too. I'm fond of saying that I found my wife on the internet in 1999. Ah, strong work. On Mm Match.com. But before I found her, I found some not so good search results. Right. And I talk about, say, there's gold on the internet, but there's also garbage. In the right. T- so, number one, 
as with everything else on the internet, whether you're looking at restaurant reviews or anything else, just be wise. Know that there is garbage and there's gold. So the way I'm going to be publishing something soon about, I finally figured out a way to describe this. The internet is a great way to discover new information, Mm -hmm. but you still have to verify it. Mm -hmm. I heard a couple of medical students talking, or recent graduates, I think they were residents at some hospital, and one said to the other one, if it's a condition I've never heard of, I always start with Wikipedia. Mm Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? Freshly trained medical students saying, start with Wikipedia. But the guy said, of course, you're a fool if you stop there. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> there is no certain way. So here's, a, here's an example. That, I mean, the simplest answer that I have is that if you stick to a government website or someplace like the Mayo Clinic website, mayo.edu, or the Johns Hopkins website or something you're very unlikely to find really bad, stupid information. Mm -hmm. But it's entirely possible that you'll find out-of-date information. Mm -hmm. Now, that's if you you have your back to the wall the way I did, it's important that you understand a couple of things that Tom Ferguson said in his manifesto. One is there's this problem he called the lethal lag time. Mm-hmm. It's known more formally as publication delay. Probably somewhere in the world today, there is a researcher who has confirmed a new result. Right. That they prove that something works or doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Well, it takes two to five years before that goes through the process of getting published and landing in places where doctors are trained to look. Mm-hmm. What you find in an expert patient community, like the one I was in, is that because their lives depend on it, they know all that work that's in process and not even read near being finished. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the things, when your back is to the wall, finding an expert patient community, mm-hmm. you can find lots of good information that hasn't been published yet. Mm-hmm. And as a result, so that one example is... The drug that I got, which is no longer the only lifesaver in kidney cancer, the drug that I got was called high-dose interleukin-2, and the only literature about it was 15 years out of date, and it said that only, I think it was 15% of patients get any response from it at all, and 4% die from the side effects, which is why most doctors wouldn't even think about it. But the my patient community knew mm-hmm. that in a hospital that does a lot of cases, their response rate is a lot better, and they're better at preventing death. So in my hospital, when I did it in 2007, they said 25% of patients were responding, and they had only lost two out of the last 1,200. Right. So there's the reality here, the, the one big rationale for Googling and finding other patients is because they can have information that just hasn't reached mm-hmm. doctors yet. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, earlier you sort of, we, we talked a little bit about getting a second opinion, which can either be to sort of make sure the diagnosis is right or maybe to uncover other treatment options. 
I have sometimes written for my audience at Better Health While Aging about the importance of keeping copies of your own medical information, in part because that makes it easier to get help from another health professional, either if you have to go to the emergency room or the hospital or if you're looking for a second opinion. So I was wondering if you keep copies of your health information and what you recommend to people in terms of of, uh, accessing their information and being able to use it. Yes, I'm glad you brought this up because it is something that right now we are in the early days of people being able to do this. But you are absolutely right. There's a widespread belief. I mean, I thought when it turned out I was dying, Mm -hmm. I assumed falsely that they would immediately pull together all the information they could find out about me and all the information, the latest information in medical research and all that. That was a fantasy world. That world mm-hmm. does not exist yet. <laughs> no, it well, doesn't. Well, and it, I mean, does so we are in a point, we are in a moment right now, early 2016, of regulatory change on this. Last April, the Department of Health and Human Service sent a report, and to me, this is scandalous. They sent a report to Congress saying that some makers of electronic medical record systems and some hospitals, the words they used were knowingly interfering with the transfer of patient information to other people. Mm. For their own competitive business purposes, they were preventing a patient's information from getting to another doctor or another computer. Now, this month, Uh they issued another declaration saying firmly and clearly that is not legal. Oh, good. And what they said was that this will not, the words they used were this will not be tolerated. Mm -hmm. However, it takes a long time for that word about things like that to spread throughout healthcare. So I would guarantee you that at least 90% of the clerks working in doctor's offices are not aware of that. Mm -hmm. I know many people who have responded to requests like that by saying, that's not our policy. Oh, that's not our policy to release information? Correct. And this is such a fundamental issue. Did you know that this area of policy, it's administered by the Office for Civil Rights? No, I think I'd forgotten that. But yeah, that's an interesting point. It is a federal civil rights violation. And the reason for that is because you're interfering with somebody's civil right to take care of themselves. Right. So they can charge you for the information. But I think that's going to be changing soon. Uh The really the thing that really will be great. We have a small number of companies now who are all members of our society, by the way, small number Mm -hmm. of companies who make software that will go get your information and put it together all in one place. But there are an awful lot of people who do it the hard way by getting all the paper and a three-hole punch and putting it in binders. It's a lot of work, but you're right. Now, I've heard of people who have been able, uh, when they find out that their mom has some new disease or whatever, they can just pick up their binder and go to a new doctor. One tip, by the way, Mm -hmm. it makes no sense at all to ask your doctor who should I get a second opinion from? Oh. <laughs> That's sort of like one voter asking Donald Trump 
where he thinks they should get a second opinion from. Of course, right. he's going to refer you to somebody who agrees with him. Uh-huh. And I'm not talking about corruption. I'm just talking about common sense. Yeah, no, it's true. It, it might make sense to ask other people. Although I think sometimes people can tell their primary care doctors that they would feel more comfortable if they could discuss it in more depth with a specialist and they can ask to go see, to well, be referred to a specialist. And uh, I used to work as a primary care doctor and, you know, usually we were amenable. Well, there's a, there's a new problem with this, though. Part of what happened with the Affordable Care Act, which I in general love, there are policies that very few primary care physicians are independent anymore. Right. And several have told me explicitly that now that they are employed by the Ajax medical health system, they are required to refer people to specialists within that health system. Right. Well, guess what? They no longer are allowed by their boss to give you their best advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. There's been a lot of pressure put on primary care doctors. And it's also interesting, this question of, you know, the referrals of that having to go through the primary care doctor. And that's not something that people as individuals can choose to decide to go and um, yes. uh, see the specialist. I mean, in a way, you you almost can. I'm not sure that it's unallowed unless you're in certain HMOs. They really want the sort of pre-authorization or agreement of the PCP, but within Medicare fee-for-service, I think you can call a specialist oh, and I, ask, but many of them sort of expect to get the information from the primary care doctor. Yeah, and, and, and the, pragmatically, it helps if your medical record is in a computer made by the same company mm-hmm. that the referral doctor does uses. But I'll give you a great example from this year, this past year in my family, my wife and I are on Medicare. It was time for her to have her knees replaced. To make a long story short, we used a surgeon three and a half hours away from home. Oh, wow. Who has an amazing new method. She bled very little. She was, uh, uh, she, her recovery was so fast that she was in rehab only for a few days. So something like nine days after the surgery, she was sent home. So you found uh, someone who sort of had a new, better way to do the knee surgery, it sounds like. Well, and he's nowhere near us. There's no way my primary physician would have even known this guy exists. And you did your own research to find him. I knew him from Twitter. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's something to be said, you know, within the quality movement, there's often this idea that they're going to set some guidelines and rules from the top to encourage quality. But I think there's something to be said for sort of enabling people to to do this sort of grassroots bottom-up quality where people look for themselves and we encourage them and enable them to do that. Well, exactly. And there's another culture change going on here that is just in the early days, which is in every other industry like automobiles, Mm -hmm. when engineers and manufacturing and management get together and start saying, this is good quality, this is bad quality. Well, no, it's not. I'm an engineer. I know this is, this is well-made. Well, what happened in the 1980s and 90s is every other industry figured out that the one who should say what makes something good quality is the customer. Uh-huh. For instance, a Toyota that's made for sale in Germany, when you slam the door, it makes a nice, quiet whoosh. 
Mm. Because they like that. You slam the door on a Toyota in the U.S., it goes thunk. Uh huh. Because that's what Americans like. Right. <laughs> uh, well, in medicine, there is a, an organization, I'm sure you know, that has, was just created as part of the Affordable Care Act called PCORI, which stands mm -hmm. for the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, mm -hmm. where patients are saying what's important. Right. I want to mention, I know we're almost out of time, and I'd be happy to continue later, but I want to mention something important on treatment options. Mm -hmm. It can be a life-saving thing. In my case, when my kidney was removed, I had to recover my health as fast as possible to get into treatment. Mm -hmm. There are two ways to take out a kidney. The usual way is what they call open surgery. Right. Cut the belly open, spread it wide open, cut through seven layers of muscle, and it takes months to get your strength back, painful months. Well, there is also laparoscopic surgery, which is what I got, where they make these little tiny incisions and you're back to normal strength in two to three weeks. Well, it turns out that surgeons who don't offer laparoscopic surgery will usually not tell patients that the option exists. Right. Well, I know a guy who died of my disease a year later, uh, partly because he couldn't start the treatment soon enough. And it turns out that that surgeon's own partner offers laparoscopic, but he wasn't offered it. Oh, that's so a shame. Ask around. Yeah, do your do your a little homework ahead of time. I think exactly. it can definitely pay yeah. off. Well, Dave, thank you so much. This has been really great to hear about this from you, and I'm so glad you were <laughs> that you survived that terrible cancer. It's just like it's an amazing story, and it's wonderful what you've done since then that you're there making things better for, for patients and for healthcare. Well, you know, here's how I look at it. If you've got something to live for, like in my case, I got to, I got to be at my daughter's wedding, got to walk her down the aisle, and now I have a two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter. Oh. oh, my goodness. If you've got something to live for, then do what you can to make it happen. And with those parting words of wisdom from e-patient Dave DeBroncart, we are going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. I hope you enjoyed Dave's story and insights as much as I did. And if you'd like to learn more about being an e-patient or a more proactive patient or participatory medicine, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode, as I'll be posting links to Dave's website and his books, and also to the website of the Society for Participatory Medicine. As always, you can find the show notes by going to our website, betterhealthwhileaging.net. If you've been enjoying the show, please do help support us by subscribing to the show on iTunes. Because when you subscribe, this makes it easier for others to discover the show. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. You'll see on the website in the podcast section that there's a nice big button that says subscribe in iTunes. And we also have a link there to make it easy for you to leave a rating and a review, which is another terrific way to support the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.